The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. Opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. And good morning, good morning, good morning. It is a little bit after 9 o'clock, 6 minutes actually on a Saturday morning. It's a gray one, it's a cool one, but we're here to talk employment law and get you set up straight, give you the knowledge, increase the bandwidth as far as what you know about employment law and things you need to know where you spend the vast majority of your time as a, uh, a worker in uh, in this country, in this province. Uh, our good pal Stan Fainzelberg is here. He's uh, he's doing all the heavy lifting, man. He's got all the show notes. In fact, he's been compiling your emails for the last several days in anticipation of our show here this morning. So Stan is ready for you. And the phone calls, as mentioned, if you want to send us an email along, we'll try to get through it sometime this morning. That would be help at employmentlawyer.ca. Any other time, here's a cool website for you to check out, free, anonymous, and full of information. You can actually go here even before you call Stan or a member of his team at the firm for uh, for a more lengthy conversation, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Okay, having said that, my brother, how are you this morning? What do you got for us for the week that was? I'm doing well, thanks, John. Thanks for uh, having me on, as always. So in terms of the week that was, I wanted to talk about uh, a couple of uh, recent decisions that came across my desk dealing specifically with this issue of mask wearing and the requirements that the governments have imposed in terms of wearing masks indoors. So one particular case was brought before the Human Rights Tribunal in Ontario. And this individual in this case claimed that the bylaw that the City of Toronto imposed upon businesses to enforce essentially mask wearing indoors was discriminatory and he claimed it was discriminatory on the basis of two particular aspects of discrimination so number one he claimed that it was discriminatory because of disability basically he said that it made it very difficult for him to breathe and in this particular case he actually disclosed to the tribunal certain underlying medical conditions which the tribunal accepted did constitute disability under the code uh, the second aspect that he claimed disability, uh, discrimination under was what, what, what's called creed. Creed isn't really that well defined in either the code or really the case law that's come out of it. But generally speaking, the tribunal has found that creed relates to sincerely held religious beliefs and practices. And, and it specifically say that creed is more than just mere political opinion. So here, what he was specifically saying is that it was against this individual's creed to follow a a law blindly from the government because he said that there was no scientific uh, basis for the mask wearing mandate. Okay. And so the tribunal talked about each of these individually. And so firstly, you know, like I said, in this particular case, this individual did disclose a medical issue mm-hmm. and the tribunal indicated that, you know, to engage the accommodation process, you don't have to, again, disclose what your specific medical diagnosis is, but you do have to disclose some underlying general medical issue that needs to be accommodated. Gotcha. In terms of creed as well. So, here, the tribunal didn't really have much, much, uh, su- or find much substance to the applicant's 
position. It basically said that, you know, we understand that you don't want to follow the government mind, mandate, but your political beliefs here don't constitute creed under the code. And it was able to brush aside this aspect of the application pretty easily. It was in the context of disability, it did say some interesting things here. Uh, it, because the bylaw itself actually has an exemption for the for individuals who have disability concerns. Uh, it actually creates an exemption whereby if you disclose some underlying condition which doesn't allow you to wear a mask, you can be exempt from the bylaw requiring you to wear a mask indoors. And because of this exemption, because the individual was attacking the bylaw itself, as opposed to any particular business where he could point to that business and say, you're not even following the bylaw and therefore discriminating against me, the court, the tribunal found that there was no discrimination on that basis. On its face, the bylaw itself is not discriminatory. And the reason I think that they found this was the fact that there is this medical exemption built, built into the process. So ultimately, what the tribunal said is the bylaw on its face is as a general practice is not discriminatory, whether it's applied correctly by any particular business, that can be found to be discriminatory if, again, a business is not following the bylaw and not following that medical exemption in the bylaw itself. Contrasting that with the case in, uh, sorry, contrasting that with the case in the BC Tribunal, where a very similar case was brought basically against a store this time, uh, claiming that the requirement to wear a mask inside the store was discriminatory. And here, they, the individual only argued that it was discriminatory on the basis of disability. What the applicant in this case said was that he was having difficulty breathing from the mask and it caused them anxiety. But unlike the case in Ontario, the applicant actually refused to provide any medical evidence or any medical even di generic diagnosis that would allow the tribunal to state that there was a disability engaged, essentially. But because this was uh, a case, so I mean, on that basis alone, the tribunal dismissed the case. But because of the public policy aspects, the tribunal actually wanted to identify some uh, some general talking points and guidance for the public because this issue is becoming so prevalent. So what it specifically said about discrimination under the code and mask wearing is it said the code does not protect people who refuse to wear a mask as a matter of personal preference, because they believe that wearing the mask is pointless, or because they disagree that wearing masks helps protect the public from the pandemic. Rather, the code only protects people from discrimination based on certain personal characteristics, such as disability. And this protection is actually reflected in the exemptions to the mask wearing rules themselves, whereby people whose disabilities prevent them from being able to wear a mask or other face coverings. Any claim for disability discrimination arising from a requirement to wear a mask must begin with establishing that there is a disability that's being interfered with. So two really interesting decisions, I think, that again, further what, what I, you know, most of us at San Fierro Tamarkin have been saying all along, which is that, you know, if you want to be exempt from certain COVID uh, requirements like wearing a mask or, you know, if you want to be exempt from a requirement where your employers say trying to force you to come back to work, yes. you can't do it simply on the basis of personal preference. I, you can't do it just because you don't want to, but you can potentially do it 
if there is some disability or underlying medical condition that's being engaged and which would require accommodation either from you know a store that you're entering as a, as a potential customer or as an employer and the requirements allow you to continue to work from home and accommodate you in that way if you sincerely and genuinely have a medical condition that prevents you from coming into the office in this current pandemic uh, situation. I, I don't have a problem with any of that. I think that's absolutely squared in a way what it should be. You can't just walk in and say, I'm not, you know, it may be a personal thing, but if you, if you rely on the fact that, oh, this, this gives me anxiety or something, so I cannot wear this. I mean, I don't think it's a big stretch to say, okay, well, if that's legit, provide us at least with some baseline medical evidence that you cannot wear this. I, I don't know how you feel about it, Stan, but I think that's, I think that's okay. I think that I have no problem with that whatsoever. I think these decisions do a really good job of balancing, you know, two very difficult competing interests because, you know, I don't think I don't think it's a stretch to say that none of us like wearing these masks. I mean, it's certainly uh, uncomfortable and <laughs> frankly, not not very flattering. But at the same time, there are much graver concerns that these masks are addressing and the overriding public policy concerns here, I think, are very valid and you can't just get around them because you don't want to. Now, the fact that they're, you know, if you have medical conditions, again, we have to accommodate for those and accommodate, as we know, in the, in the human rights context means accommodation to the point of undue hardship. So it's not accommodation forever or for any request. It's always about comp- balancing competing interests and trying to find some reasonable middle ground you know, always skewing to the accommodation side of things because we know that we have to protect minorities in these situations. We have to protect our most vulnerable people, but we also have to make, you know, uh, exceptions and recognize that there are issues when, uh, when imposing accommodation that we have to balance those. So I think these decisions do a really good job in illuminating the balancing uh, interests here. And Really, I think straight the straight the correct uh, mark. Couldn't agree. Uh, couldn't agree anymore, my friend. Going to concentrate on a ton of email here uh, this morning, Stan, because you've sent these along and they're really adding up. And I know you guys, uh, everybody on the team at the firm, every lawyer tries to answer as many as they can during the week. In between everything else, they have to do. So uh, we got a couple minutes before we uh, take our first break. Let's get to uh, Hunter. Hunter's up first. Says, "Hey, Stan, what am I owed for severance if I have worked for a company for seventeen years?" They just terminated me and only gave me eight weeks, which seems very low to me. Well, it seems low, Hunter, because it's, it is extremely low. I mean, from what it looks like to me, what they've done essentially is they've given you your absolute minimum entitlements under the statute. You know, under the statute, as we know, John, you have entitlements to, uh, basically to notice or termination pay, and that entitlement is a week per year up to a maximum of eight weeks and then if your company has a payroll of over 2.5 million dollars and you've been there for more than five years well then you get an additional week per year for severance pay up to 26 weeks so what uh, what i see going on here from uh, this question is basically an employer that's on the smaller end you know less than 2.5 million dollar payroll very likely giving a employee you know what they think are their entitlements. They probably looked online, looked at the statute, said eight weeks, great, I'll give the guy eight weeks and I've fulfilled my obligations. But that's just not how it works at law, John. Uh, You know, as we know, unless you've got a contract that says you are only entitled to these minimums and nothing else, then you are entitled to significantly more than that. 
for a person who's been there for 17 years, you know, it's and without knowing kind of the rest of the, the regular factors that we consider when determining these things in terms of position, in terms of age, I don't think it's a stretch to, to say that that person's probably getting anywhere from 12 to 17 months at common law. So, it, again, it seems low because it is. This is why we put out the show so that people like Hunter know what their rights are and and don't just accept what the employer is telling them, that they can go and do their own due diligence, speak to a lawyer, and ultimately get what they deserve. Employment Law Show continues. This is Global News Radio. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Right back at an Employment Law Show. And Firu Tamarkin, of which Stan is part of this excellent firm, uh, both employment law and disability law at the same time, the most positively Googled, reviewed law firm in the country. As far as that's concerned, you can check that out. I do not lie. I do not lie. Get to uh, to Mike here. Hey, Mikey, uh, thanks for hanging on for a couple of moments. I have a question. Um, My wife works in the medical field. Can she be forced to take the vaccine? Or can she be discriminated against it? Well, discrimination, Mike, as I was uh, kind of pointing to earlier, means something specific. So discrimination doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're being picked on because you're different. I know that that's the general, you know, uh, definition of what we consider discrimination. But under the Human Rights Code and in law, it has to mean something specific. It has to fall within a certain ground of discrimination. So two that I touched on earlier were creed. And usually the one that's engaged in this pandemic uh, circumstances has been disability. So firstly, you know, the question of whether your wife can uh, be forced to take the vaccine in a medical context, I would say that's a very, you know, very difficult position for the employer to take. Forcing a person to take uh, to undergo a medical procedure, which is what taking a vaccine ultimately is, it is very likely something the employer doesn't have the power to do. That being said, if an individual it works in a setting in a medical setting, you know where you're dealing with vulnerable other uh, patients, then the employer may say to that individual, you know, if you're not willing to take the vaccine, that's fine, but we can't have you in the workplace, and therefore you're going to go on a leave of absence. So. I, I would say that I don't think they have the ability to necessarily force your wife to take the vaccine, but I think that they can place her on a leave of absence uh, until she either does or until, you know, circumstances change. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. You, need, uh, you need more information or further chat with Stan, you can do it. Here's the number to reach out uh, when we're done, one 821 Let's get to, uh, to Terry. Hi, Terry. Thanks for standing by. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. What, uh, what's on your mind? So I purchased a franchise uh, from a company that was going to be expanding. So I thought I was getting in at ground level. Unfortunately, I ended up being the only franchise with the company for a very long time, over five years. And through many differences of opinions um, on what that franchise was supposed to do for me and how we were supposed to grow the company, I received an email um, just just after um, a very uh, difficult conversation where he asked me if I had mental health issues. Asked me, quote-unquote, are you off your meds? 
Um, and the next thing I got from him was an email saying, you're no longer employed. Uh, you no longer have a franchise and good luck to you. Mm-hmm. There was no discussion, no anything. I was just told I could not operate. He shut my, he shut off all of my uh, information on the internet. He closed me down and I was done. Okay. Well, Firstly, I mean, uh, one thing I want to address, Terry, that you mentioned is the the line that you said where you said you're no longer employed. So as a franchisee, that's not really an employment relationship. Uh, that's a commercial contractual relationship, franchise or franchisee relationship. So it, employment law doesn't necessarily, you know, apply here. Right. That, that being said, you know, uh, I'm... I would be quite surprised that they have a contract that just allows them to completely cut you off that way. When, whenever you signed your franchise agreement, any remedy you can have ultimately would be in that agreement. So if there's, you know, usually they'll talk a franchise agreement, just like any other contract, an employment contract, will often talk about what happens if one party wants to tr- terminate the contract. Right. And usually there's obligations on either party to either give notice or, you know, right. to, to ensure that it's done in an orderly way or, you know, to minimize the impacts here. I, I would imagine that the way this was done was probably the worst possible way and this car caused you significant financial harm. Sure did. That in and of itself can, ca- can be a breach of contract and allow you to pursue the franchisor for breach of contract and for the damages that result thereof. Right. So, um, this particular person, um, with this contract, which was over 400 pages long and he only had one franchisee, um, is that something worth me contacting your firm for? I would say that my firm is probably not the appropriate uh, firm to handle this for you. As I said, this is more of a commercial transaction rather than something that falls in the employment sphere. But okay. the question of whether it makes sense for you to ha- seek you know, a lawyer's help, to me, I think I would start from the, the question of how much have you lost? If you've right. lost a significant amount, uh, mm-hmm. if, you're, you know, if you're now stuck in a lease, let's say, that you can't get out of and you don't have a franchise to, to put into the, the retail location, you know, all of those losses potentially that flow from the breach of contract can fall on the, the franchisor as damages because they didn't act in accordance with the contract. So I think you have to look at it from that perspective. If you have significant losses, you should definitely at least reach out to a lawyer to see what remedies are available to you, if any. Okay, and under what, um, like under what vertical would that fall? Like is that, what, what kind of law am I looking at? Well, franchise law is actually its own subset of law. There are firms that handle franchise law specifically. Right. So I would start there, but but generally as well, if it, I mean, if it, if not franchise law, then certainly commercial law. And there's quite a lot of firms that do, you know, commercial and business uh, transactions very similar to this. This is, I mean, on its face, it may be, you know, I'm very, I'm sure it's very complicated in terms of the specific details. But right. breaches of a contract are ultimately breaches of contract. You look at the contract. What does it require the parties to do? And did that happen? Okay. Thank you. I appreciate your help. Thank you, Terry. We'll go back to our uh, list of emails, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Very simple, help at employmentlawyer.ca. 
Uh, next one, brother, is from uh, Pierre. Let's get to Pierre. It says, hey, guys, I just got hired by a company and I'm starting in the next two weeks. I keep asking them to send me a contract to sign, but they won't send. And just tell me that we can figure it out on the first day I come in. Do they have to provide the contract for me? Pierre is the lucky man at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is what so many employees that we talk to uh, yeah. don't realize is that not only do you not need a contract, you don't want a contract. Mm -hmm. Contract is there to protect the employer and to minimize generally their liability upon termination. If, if you don't have a written contract, that doesn't mean you don't have any contract. Uh, you have what's called an oral and implied contract. You have an oral agreement. I mean, you know what your position is. You know when you're starting. You probably know what you're making there. You probably know what your work is, uh, what your work schedule is, what your responsibilities are. So that would be the oral aspects. And then what? Off, and then the law will imply certain terms into the contract as well, whether or not they were discussed, whether or not they were written down. And one of those terms is that if you, if you terminate an employee, they are entitled to common law notice. So, Pierre, what I would say is don't worry about it. You don't want a contract, and you don't need one. Pierre, appreciate the uh, reaching out. If you want to uh, send uh, or at least make a phone call to Stan for some further information, have a bit more of a lengthy chat, that is easy, easy. one 821 You also go to Pocket Employment Lawyer. .ca. Talia writes in again, help at employmentlawyer.ca. How much time should an employer provide an employee to review an employment contract? It's all about the contracts today. So, so I, I mean, there's no set amount of time, Talia, that I can tell you is the appropriate amount of time. The real question when it comes to, you know, giving an employee time to review an employment contract or a termination letter with a severance package, let's say, is have you given that person a reasonable opportunity to seek legal advice? Because in a scenario, let's say where you, you know, you sit down and they slide a contract across the desk the first day you show up and say, sign it. You signing that contract may not give the employer the protection that they want because number one, you may not know what you're signing and because they didn't give you an opportunity to speak to a lawyer you didn't have the ability to even ascertain that information. That could invalidate the contract itself. So, you know, as a general rule of thumb, what I tell my employer clients is uh, if you're terminating someone or if you're asking them to sign a contract, right in there, right into the, into the letter you're giving them, say, you know, you've got seven days to review this and go and seek legal advice and figure out what you need to do to satisfy yourself before you sign this contract. Even if, you know, even if they don't do that, you as the employer have given them the opportunity to, opportunity to do that. And, and that will satisfy the obligation from the employer's perspective to give the employee a reasonable opportunity to try to ascertain what this contract says. So there you go, Tiff. Hope that, uh, or at least uh, helped, uh, hope that helped anyway. The email address, by the way, is help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll take a short little break. Employment Law Show, Global News Radio. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. 
The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Employment Law Show Stan is here answering all of your questions and emails to help at employmentlawyer.ca. That's the email list we're going through. And from this morning, get to our next one would be from Tiffany Stan. She says, uh, simple question, short, is there a difference between notice and severance pay? Yeah, simple question, John, but... Uh... A complicated answer, and it's what this is actually something I hear all the time. And so, what I would say is, I mean, there is a difference between notice and severance pay, but they're often used interchangeably. So the difference is essentially under the Employment Standards Act, as we know, you know, these are two very distinct provisions. Notice is one aspect; you can you either get notice or termination pay of a week per year, up to a maximum of eight weeks. And severance pay is a secondary aspect, where if you've been at a company for over five years, if that company has a payroll of over $2.5 million, then you also get a week per year, up to a maximum of 26 weeks of severance pay. That's what it means under the statute. But the way that most people conceive of it is they don't really, you know, they don't really consider under the statute. They just say, well, what, what am I entitled to? Was it notice or severance pay? And the answer is that these are interchangeable under the common law. They actually mean the same thing. Uh, people, you know, often mistake notice and severance uh, when they're really talking about the same thing. So what I would say is that they do mean different things. But most times when people talk about them, they're actually talking about the same thing. So there you go. Hope that answered. Uh, Tiff, you want to reach out to Stan, get some more information on that uh, answer for your simple question is uh, 1-855-821-5900. Stella. Stella's coming up next. Says, guys, I got terminated today, but I well, it was yesterday. So I got terminated today on Saturday morning, but was told I have to stay around until the end of April. Do I actually have to keep working even though they fired me? Yeah. So unfortunately, I mean, what it sounds like is going on here, John, is that this company has decided to give Stella what's called working notice. To satisfy that notice requirement under the Employment Standards Act, you know, you can either give actual notice, like your job is ending four weeks from now and we expect you to work out that period, or you can give the opposite pay in lieu of notice or termination pay under the Act, which is just paying out the money that you would have worked for those four weeks. Uh, it is at the employer's discretion which way they want to go with it. If an employer gives you working notice, the unfortunate reality is you have to work out that notice period. If you decide to leave, uh, that can be and very likely will be considered a resignation. And then any other entitlements you may have after the notice period will generally go away with the exception of the severance pay component under the ESA. Even if you don't want to work out the notice period, they still have to pay you the severance pay component of the, uh, under the statute. Does that notice that uh, Stella's talking about, does it not? It can't be verbal. It has to be a written notice, right, with a definitive date. Otherwise, it doesn't really hold a lot of water, correct? It has to be a definitive date for sure. Okay. You know, telling somebody that your job is ending sometime in the fall is not effective notice. The idea of notice itself is that, you know, this person is being told concretely, you know, without any sort of uh, exceptions, your job is ending on April 30th, let's say. And 
Therefore, you know with certainty your job is ending. You need to start preparing for that. If in my other example, if I tell you, well, your job is ending sometime in the fall, but you know we're not entirely sure and it might be extended and it might not be, that doesn't give you any sort of certainty as an employee. It doesn't tell you when your job is ending. It doesn't tell you, you know, that you need to start preparing for that outcome. So it does need to be concrete in the sense that you have to give a specific date. Uh, in terms of the written component, now the statute does say it has to be written. I'll, I'll start from that premise. But what from the common law perspective and from a judge's perspective, you know, it, it's more a question of what was said and what was understood. If, if I tell you concretely, John, your job is ending on April 30th and consider the time between today and tomorrow, that date to be working notice, even though it's not written down, it still very likely fulfills the requirement to give you, no, you know, the the various components in terms of certainty uh, of to give you actual notice that your job is ending and I think from a judge's perspective from a common law perspective an oral representation like that will more than likely be enough even though the statute does say you need to get it in writing so I guess really the 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 important part as you just said is the actual end date I guess it would be the same as you know we're letting you go and here's your severance ah that severance will go till about yeah, I don't know midfall <laughs> I mean it's going to be more definitive right absolutely and you know there's even beyond that let's say I give you a concrete end date and then I decide to extend it you know once well once is fine the 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 statute actually allows for an extension of the working notice period as long as it's not longer than 13 weeks. And, and I believe the statute actually allows you to do that twice. But what if, I'm ex what if I've given you working notice and I'm extending that date three, four, five times? At some point in this sequence, in this fact scenario, the court's going to say that there is no certainty. At some point, the court's going to say that that employee can't rely on any individual you know, termination date as being an actual termination date because they don't know whether they're going to get their date extended again or if you're actually going to be terminated this time around. So it was actually, you know, uh, it was our fearless leader, Leor, who, who took this case to the Court of Appeal and established this principle, really, that said that if you extend the working notice period too many times, it loses that certainty component and it won't be effective even if the last extension says concretely well your job is ending on november 30th and that's what the court of appeal said and that's the law in ontario now so what uh, if if somebody as an employee is hearing this and they've been faced with that they you know the employer soon to be former employer has moved the goalpost three or four times what what is their recourse well their recourse is effectively to to sue the employer and say that none of that working notice counts uh that you that I didn't have any certainty, that I couldn't rely on the employer's representations here, and that the court should not consider that working notice when determining what am I entitled to. Anytime you want to reach out, by the way, when we're not doing the show with Stan or a member of the team, Lior for that matter, or any other lawyer, you can reach out, one 821 5900 We talk about it all the time, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, free anonymous website, tons of employment law information there. And I want to mention just simply employmentlawyer.ca. If you haven't been to the uh, firm website, that will give you direction to our long-running TV series as well. You can check that out. Let's take a short break. Employment Law Show, Global News Radio.
You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. We're back at it and welcome back. Thanks for hanging around. If you're just joining us, Employment Law Show, Stan Fanselberg is your guy. We are getting through a ton of email this morning at help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll get to Tristan now. Stan says, guys, I had an argument with my boss yesterday during which I told him I can't keep doing this and stormed out. We've been very stressed at work, and we both said some things we regretted. I took a day off to to cool off and then came back to work. My boss called me into his office, and we apologized to each other. But he told me this isn't working and that he is uh, accepting he's accepting my resignation. I don't feel like I quit, and I'm worried about getting EI. Is there anything I can do? Well, Tristan, yeah, there's certainly a, a lot I think you can do here. Because the fact of the matter is, from what your email says, you haven't resigned. Uh, resignation is not is generally something that you do, and it's not something that's forced upon you. Uh, while you, while I understand, you know, you may have stormed out of a heated conversation, that doesn't mean you resigned your job. Uh, in fact, there's there's significant law that talks about, you know heat of the moment situations where people have even said the words, I quit. And that wasn't in and of itself a resignation because of the context and what followed afterwards, where the employee, you know, made very clear that they didn't intend to quit. It was just a a heat of the moment, uh, you know, conversation that they regretted what happened. So what it sounds like to me is your bosses and your employers kind of taking advantage of you here. They're trying to get away without having to pay, you know, to let you go without having to pay you out. And from my perspective, this isn't a resignation. If they, you know, they clearly terminate you and you're entitled to your, your notice period. Want to reach out further? You sure can, Tristan. That is 1-855-821-5900. Get another phone call in here with some more uh, remaining minutes. That would be Gene. Hi, Gene. Thank you. How are you? Hey, Gene calling to find out with this new vaccine that um, is about to be given. Can your employer force you to take it or is it mandatory that you have to take it if you don't want to? So so generally speaking, I would say you, an employer cannot force you to take a vaccine. Uh, that would be akin to forcing you to go under, undergo a medical procedure. An employer yeah. can't make you do that. That being said, if, if your job requires you potentially to interact with vulnerable individuals and in, you know if like you said let's say you worked in a long-term care home then they may say to you well if you can't take the vaccine then we can't accommodate you by continuing or by allowing you to work you know that might be a difficult argument because obviously you know you may have been working this whole time without the vaccine wearing a mask wearing a visor whatever and so accommodation has clearly occurred but it may be open to the employer to say, well, if you're not willing to take the vaccine, then you're going to have to go on a leave of absence. All right, Gene, I guess that's uh, guess that's all you need to know. You want a further conversation, you can do that. one 821 5900 Going to keep it going here. Stephen, uh, Stephen, sorry. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Uh, my question is, I work in a warehouse in the Halton area. And the PPE isn't being met, uh, meaning the masks and the self-distancing that. Right down to the, you know, you go to the shift supervisor, he's not wearing a mask either. And, you know, the 
you go beyond him, you go to the plant manager, and he sits there and says, well, you know, I've warned everyone, so if the ministry walks in and gives you guys a $750 fine, it's your, you know, you are planning yourself. I'm worried about working in an environment with the COVID going on. What are my rights? Uh, can I walk off saying it's unsafe? Uh, what do I do? Yeah, I mean, firstly, you do have the uh, the right, if you feel that a workplace is unsafe, to tell the employer that it's unsafe and ask them to conduct an investigation. And if they do that, and then you still don't like the remedy the employer is uh, providing or, you know, the findings of the investigation you don't agree with, you can involve the Ministry of Labor and basically say, I, I can't work in this environment, it's unsafe. And the Ministry of Labor will come in and do its own investigation. So you have an absolute right to refuse unsafe work or to work in an unsafe workplace. And in terms of what your, you know, your supervisor is doing, it's very clearly a breach of, you know, the, the provincial orders, uh, the Ministry of Labor guidelines. Just generally, I mean, there's no rhyme or, you know, real reasoning that I can foresee that will allow a supervisor not to wear a mask in, the, in a warehouse and workplace setting. And so not only is that supervisor opening themselves up to liability, the company can also be liable for that person's actions. So you definitely have, you know, uh, options here. You don't have to just accept it. Uh, I, you can speak to your employer and make it known that you're not willing to do to work in this environment. And if they don't remedy the situation in a way that you uh, agree with, you can involve the Ministry of Labor. And one other thing I'll mention is that you know often people are, are very scared to bring this up to their employers because they're worried about the employer taking some sort of reprisals against them, uh, like not giving them work, let's say. That yeah, is also illegal. Uh, rock and hard place because I said um, the employees are going to be kicked. Uh, the supervisor doesn't wear it. The plant manager will come out on the floor two or three times a day, and he doesn't wear a mask. Uh, no one seems to. Uh, yeah. And I so said, with my job, uh, as we do, we pick orders, and they come into me, and I verify all the orders. So I have pickers coming up to me all the time saying, I shorted this, mm -hmm. I shorted that. I have uh, people waiting to uh, create the product up. So they're hanging over me, waiting yeah, that's for a me hot to finish my job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like that what they're doing is obviously breaching the, the province's guidelines and protocols. And, Definitely. you know, it, it, if they won't rectify it in themselves, you may need to get the ministry involved. And the point I was making is ultimately they cannot reprise against you. They can't do anything against you because you're exercising your rights and getting the ministry involved. Like even if let's say they decide to terminate you, I mean, if you prove that that was a reprisal because you brought these issues up, the, the ministry can actually force them to take you back and force them to give you back pay for all the time that you missed. Okay, but I can't just walk off without doing the proper steps first. Well, you can refuse to, to come in and tell them that you're not willing to work in that unsafe environment, and they can't do anything you know necessarily about that right away, at least, because they have to go through their procedural steps of investigating and taking your complaint seriously. Okay, then. I see. I thank you for uh, the information. Stefan, appreciate, uh, appreciate your time as well. If things get a little sticky over there, uh, I'm going to give you a number to reach out just in case you want some more information from Stank and guide you.
uh, properly anyway. That would be one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. That would be the way to call through. We want to get to one final email here, Stan, before we uh, we go. This one from Zoe says. I got uh, I got let go today, even though I feel I did nothing wrong and have always been complimented on my work. Does an employee need a reason to terminate me? Uh, I mean the 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 reality is that in Ontario, an employer does not have to provide you with a reason to terminate your employment. Uh, they can, in fact, terminate your employment for any reason, as long as that reason is not discriminatory. And as long as they provide you with a fair severance package. So, you know, they don't have to tell you why, but they do have to compensate you. And there you go. You need more information as we wrap it up for another day. It's been a good time. Good to appreciate all your phone calls and correspondence as well. The phone number to reach out to Stan now that we are just about done. one 821 5900 The email we use is help at employmentlawyer.ca. Just employmentlawyer.ca. The website will give you links to many things, including our te- uh, television show as well. And the website built just for you, absolutely free and anonymous anytime, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We'll do it all again. Employment Law Show on Global News Radio. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. Opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto.